0: Hey, Conjurers, I'm Steph
1: and I'm Sham.
0: When you leave your children in the care of someone else, you trust and hope that they will care for them as well as you would. Whether it's a babysitter for a date night or regular daycare services to cover your time at work, when you drop off your child, you're leaving a piece of your heart behind. Today, we want to tell you a horrific story of loving parents who trusted the wrong person with the care of their children. Sylvia Marie Lykins was born on January 3, 1949, to Lester and Betty Lycan. She was the odd one out, squeezed between two sets of twins, an older set of twin siblings, Diana and Daniel, and a younger set of twins, Jenny and Benny. Lester and Betty were loving parents who did their best to provide for their children, but neither had higher than an eighth grade education. They jumped from odd job to odd job, often settling on selling candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands. They moved around a lot following the carnivals and regularly experienced severe financial difficulties. Most of the time, they took their sons with them to help while working the carnivals, but they feared for the safety of their daughters in that environment. This led them to leaving their three daughters behind, usually with trusted friends and family. In July of 1965, Sylvia was in the height of her sweet 16s. She was a beautiful, confident, and friendly girl with long wavy brown hair and an infectious smile despite a missing front tooth from roughhousing with her brothers when she was seven. She, like most teenage girls at the time, loved the Beatles. Even though she was only one year older, she really took care of her younger sister Jenny and was very protective of her. Jenny had a limp leg as a result of catching polio and had to wear a brace in order to walk. Sylvia would earn spending money by babysitting and helping people in the neighborhood with errands. She often spent that money on trips to the skating rink for her and Jenny. Sylvia would fasten one skate to Jenny's strong foot and then hold her hand so she could skate with the other kids. The family had recently moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, where Sylvia and Jenny met Paula and Stephanie Banisowski at Arsenal Technical High School that year. They were about the same ages and instantly clicked. They started spending time together after school, listening to music and talking about boys. On June 3rd, their mom, Betty, was arrested for shoplifting, and Lester had to arrange for someone to keep the girls so he, Betty, and the boys could take off after the carnivals as soon as she was released. He started talking one day with Paula and Stephanie's mother, Gertrude, about his need to find someone to take care of Sylvia and Jenny while they were away. Since their daughters got along so well, they agreed it would be a perfect fit for Gertrude to take them in. He agreed to pay her $20 a week for their board and care, and Gertrude promised to take care of the girls as if they were her own until Lester and Betty returned in November.
1: I'm not trusting anyone with the name Gertrude. I'm sorry, I'm just not doing it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely got a certain feel to it. Lester probably didn't care, though. He was desperate, and his wife most likely usually took care of those kinds of arrangements for the kids.
1: Well, with a name like that alone, you have to be an angry individual.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if Lester had taken the time to really investigate Gertrude or her home, he may have made a different choice. You see, Gertrude was actually a pill-popping, chain-smoking, single mom of seven children with a violent temper living in very bad conditions at 3850 East New York Street in Indianapolis, Indiana. $20 a week was exactly what Gertrude needed at that time. She didn't have a job, and her only source of money was inconsistent child support checks from her ex-husband and pennies for ironing for a few people in the neighborhood. $20 a week doesn't sound like much now, but $20 back in 1965 comes to about $165 today. Her rent was $55 a month, so the money she would get from Lester would cover that and more. Gertrude dropped out of school at 16 years old and married 18-year-old Deputy Sheriff John Banisowski. They had four kids together, but John was physically abusive, and after 10 years of marriage, Gertrude divorced him and immediately married a man named Edward Guthrie. He divorced her after only a few months because he didn't like having her kids around. Gertrude went back to John, they got remarried, and spent another seven years together having two more children. When Gertrude was 35, she started an affair with a 22-year-old man named Dennis Lee Wright. She divorced John again, hoping Dennis would marry her. Dennis also abused her violently and had no interest in marrying her. They had a son together in 1964, and shortly after, he abandoned her and moved to Germany. She filed a paternity suit against him, but never saw a dime.
1: She sounds like she just settles for anyone that shows her attention. Aside from her general life choices, she also applies that to the men.
0: She definitely has bad taste in men.
1: How was Gertrude's health at this time? I mean, you said she was on pills and had violent tendencies. Did she end up showing a different side of herself to the girl's parents? In
0: 1965, when Lester made the arrangements with Gertrude, she was now 37 years old, but looked much older due to her hard life and serious and chronic health conditions like bronchitis and asthma. She was described as a frail woman. At five feet, six inches tall, she only weighed a 100 pounds and had a haggard look about her. She suffered from depression and struggled to care for her seven children. Paula, who was 17, Stephanie, who was 15, John, who was 12, Marie, who was 11, Shirley, who was 10, James, who was eight, and Dennis Jr., who was one. Taking in Sylvia and Jenny brought the total living in that house up to 10. While she desperately needed the money, the last thing she needed was more children to take care of. There wasn't a stove or microwave in the house, only a hot plate to warm up food. Most of the surfaces in the home were caked with thick layers of dirt, and she only had enough plates and eating utensils for three people. There weren't even enough beds for all of the children. Sylvia and Jenny shared a room with the little ones, Marie, Shirley, and James. There was one mattress on the floor that the five children took turns sleeping on. The first few weeks, the family treated Sylvia and Jenny kindly. The girls sang along to popular songs and giggled about boys. They all attended church together, and Sylvia willingly helped out with the housework. The Banisowski home was a kind of neighborhood hangout. The kids could get away with things their parents wouldn't allow, like smoking, drinking, even raunchy sex talk. The only adult in the home, Gertrude, refused to accept that she was two decades older than the children running around and would often flirt and dance with the teenage boys.
1: Okay, so she's a pedophile. Got it.
0: Yeah. I would be suspicious of any neighborhood house where all the kids want to hang out. Usually something shady is happening there.
1: Oh, I'm sure the entire neighborhood noticed kids going in and out of that house. Some went in sober and left intoxicated or high. It doesn't sound like the girls got much structure, but at least they had a home to stay in while their parents were away.
0: Well, a few weeks after they moved in, the agreed-upon weekly payment didn't arrive on the prearranged date. Gertrude was so enraged that the check didn't arrive that she marched Sylvia and Jenny upstairs, removed their clothing, and bent them over her bed. She beat the bare bottom of each girl with a one-quarter-inch-thick paddle several times. As she beat them, she screamed at them, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing. The money arrived in the mail the very next day. But Gertrude never apologized. A few days later, Lester and Betty came personally to give Gertrude an advance payment and to see their daughters. Neither girl mentioned the beating, hoping it was a one-time thing and trying to let it go. Unfortunately, it would only escalate from there. To add to Gertrude's stress and financial burden, she learned that her 17-year-old daughter Paula was pregnant after a fling with a middle-aged married man. At this point, something snapped in Gertrude, and she focused her anger and frustration squarely on Sylvia. One day during that summer, Sylvia had collected pop bottles to recycle in order to buy some candy for herself and Jenny. When she showed up at home with the candy, Gertrude accused her of stealing it and beat Sylvia viciously across the back and head with the wooden paddle. During the beating, Gertrude became weak due to her chronic bronchitis and handed the paddle over to her daughter Paula to finish the punishment. Over the last several weeks, Paula had developed a horrible jealousy of Sylvia's looks and potential in life and took pleasure in beating her.
1: Okay, one, it's been a solid seven days. Calm the hell down. And two, it sounds like all that letting her kids be adults in and out of her home finally caught up to her. She watched her mother flirt with children and thought it was normal to let a grown man flirt with her. Paula has literally become a miniature version of her mother.
0: Absolutely. And it sounds like she didn't mind her daughter being just like her since straight away she started encouraging her to participate in beating these girls as punishment.
1: The saying, if they hit you once, they'll do it again, doesn't just apply to domestic violence cases. It applies to anyone who disrespects your boundaries and body.
0: Exactly. On another occasion, both Sylvia and Jenny were beaten approximately 15 times on the back with the paddle after Paula accused the sisters of eating too much food at a church dinner they had all attended. After the church dinner incident, Gertrude and Paula started ridiculing Sylvia, calling her fat and refusing to let her eat anything except leftovers and spoiled food out of the trash. That August, several neighborhood kids were over hanging out and everyone was talking about boyfriends and girlfriends they had had. When pressed, Sylvia told them she had a boyfriend in California last spring when her family lived there. Gertrude asked if she had ever done anything with a boy. Sylvia didn't really know what she meant, so she replied with, I guess so, we went skating a lot. They all laughed at her and continued to press her on more intimate things she had done with a boy. Eventually, she admitted that she had laid in a bed under the covers with him fully clothed. Hearing this, Gertrude was disgusted with Sylvia and started calling her names and screaming at her to never do anything with a boy until she's married. Sylvia tried to defend herself, insisting she didn't do anything, but that only made Gertrude more angry. Gertrude and Paula then started kicking Sylvia in the genitals, laughing and claiming that they were helping her out in case she was pregnant. Kicking her wasn't enough for Gertrude, though, who likely wanted to take out her shame and frustration over her own daughter's teenage pregnancy on Sylvia. She demanded Sylvia show Jenny what kind of a girl she is. She forced Sylvia to strip naked and masturbate with a Coca-Cola bottle while Gertrude's own children and the neighborhood boys all watched and laughed. She refused to let Sylvia stop until she had climaxed in front of everyone. After it was over, Gertrude and Stephanie forced Sylvia into a bath of boiling water to cleanse her of her sins until her skin was covered in blisters.
1: Okay, I'm not here to shame teenage mothers. Shit happens. But your daughter full-on had sex and has the proof in her stomach right now, yet you're disgusted with Sylvia? Also, it doesn't matter if Sylvia is a girl and Gertrude is a woman. You watching a child masturbate is pedophilia. On top of that, you're letting your little children under 12 watch this too. This is so horrifying to even think about, let alone live through.
0: It seriously makes me feel sick. I completely agree with you, but even more that she's distributing child pornography live by forcing Sylvia to do this in front of other people. Only a truly evil person would do something like this. It gets worse. Everyone started joining in on the abuse at this point. One night during dinner, Paula kicked Sylvia's chair out from under her, yelling, You ain't fit to sit in a chair. A neighborhood boy there for dinner named Randy Lepper joined in by force feeding a hot dog overloaded with spices and condiments down Sylvia's throat. She vomited, and as a result, they forced her to eat her vomit off the floor while they laughed. By the end of summer, Sylvia was regularly being verbally tormented, assaulted, starved, beaten, burned, and forced to commit humiliating acts. In late August, new neighbors moved in next door. Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion threw a backyard barbecue in order to get to know the neighborhood. During the course of the barbecue, Phyllis noticed Sylvia wandering around the yard with a black eye. Paula proudly announced to Phyllis that she was the one who had given it to her. Then with Gertrude's approval, Paula approached Sylvia with a glass of steaming hot water and threw it in Sylvia's face. Neither Phyllis or Raymond reported this incident to the authorities. A week later, Phyllis stopped by to borrow something from Gertrude and noticed Sylvia wandering around as if she was in a daze with swollen lips and another black eye, but this time her eye was swollen shut. Paula took it upon herself to demonstrate for Phyllis how it had happened by taking off her belt and beating Sylvia right there in front of her. Still, Phyllis did nothing.
1: Okay, lock Phyllis and Raymond up too, since they didn't want to be adults in the situation. At this point, everyone's failing Sylvia. She had to feel helpless and embarrassed.
0: What adult in their right mind witnesses that and doesn't do anything? I agree. Phyllis and Raymond are also responsible. I'm making a list.
1: (laughs) What about outside the neighborhood? She's still a minor, and school is mandatory. At least now it is.
0: Yeah, so the children all returned to school in the fall, and Sylvia felt a little bolder with more freedom outside of Gertrude's house. In what was likely Sylvia's only act of retaliation, she spread rumors at their high school that Paula and Stephanie were prostitutes. A boy jokingly propositioned stephanie and told her about the rumor sylvia had started when they all returned home that day stephanie confronted sylvia she admitted to starting the rumor and stephanie punched her in the face sylvia apologized and she and stephanie actually made up but that wasn't the end of it when stephanie's 15 year old boyfriend coy hubbard heard the rumor he brutally attacked sylvia beating her head against a wall and slamming her backwards onto the floor. Gertrude wasn't going to let it go either. She beat Sylvia with the paddle and hurled filthy names at her. One day Sylvia came home from school and told Gertrude that she needed a sweatsuit for gym class. When Gertrude told Sylvia that they couldn't afford one, Sylvia stole it from school. Gertrude questioned Sylvia about her new gym outfit and eventually she confessed. In order to cure Sylvia of her sticky fingers, Gertrude burned the tips of each of Sylvia's fingers with a lit cigarette. Afterwards, she made Sylvia bend over while she whipped her with a belt. After this incident, anyone who smoked in Gertrude's home began putting their cigarettes out on Sylvia's body as a reminder for her not to steal. Jenny and Sylvia were too afraid to notify either family members or adults at their school of the increasing incidence of abuse and neglect they were enduring. They were afraid that doing so would only worsen their predicament. Jenny in particular had been threatened by Gertrude that if she told anyone what they did to Sylvia, she herself would be abused and tortured the same as her sister. Teachers and other adults at the school noticed the open sores and bruises and other signs of abuse, but without Sylvia telling them outright, they didn't feel there was anything they could do. There was one 12-year-old girl who saw the abuse happening to Sylvia and went home and told her mom that at Gertrude's house they were beating and kicking a girl. Her mother replied that that is what happened when someone needed to be punished.
1: Oh, Okay, so are all the parents in the neighborhood just brutally beating the shit out of their kids then? Because I'm confused.
0: This has to be a neighborhood of monsters. There's no other explanation other than every single person living in that neighborhood, adult and child, are certifiable psychopaths.
1: I still can't believe the teacher said nothing.
0: Around this time, Sylvia gradually became incontinent as a result of all of the physical abuse. Gertrude was disgusted by Sylvia's bedwetting and decided that she was no longer fit to live with humans and locked her in the basement. The lack of a toilet in the basement forced Sylvia to defecate and urinate on the floor in corners of the room. Occasionally, she was tied to the railing of the basement stairs with her feet barely touching the ground. Gertrude started calling Sylvia Dirty Girl and started subjecting her to a daily bathing routine. The routine consisted of filling a bathtub with scalding water, tying Sylvia's wrists and ankles, and then dunking her into it. Following the baths, Paula would rub handfuls of salt all over Sylvia's nude body. In September, the girls encountered their older sister, Diana, at a local park. Both Jenny and Sylvia told Diana about the abuse they were experiencing at the hands of their caregiver, adding that Sylvia was being specifically targeted. Neither sister mentioned the actual address where they were living and initially, Diana believed her sisters must be exaggerating. On October 1st, Diana tracked down where her sisters were staying. She visited the property in an attempt to see her little sisters, but Gertrude refused to let her in. Gertrude used the excuse that she didn't have permission from their parents to allow either girl to see her. She then ordered Diana off the property. Concerned, Diana contacted social services. When a social worker arrived at the home, Gertrude made up a story that she had kicked Sylvia out of the house for being physically unclean and a prostitute, and that Sylvia had since run away. Gertrude then managed to get Jenny alone long enough to inform her that if she told the social worker the truth, Jenny would join her sister naked in the basement. Jenny then told the social worker that Sylvia had indeed run away. The social worker returned to her office, where she filed a report stating that no more calls needed to be made to the home.
1: Oh my gosh, (laughs) this is so messed up. Check the entire house before you believe anything from a caretaker
0: or the children she could be easily manipulating. Right? Someone is accused of abuse and the social worker just asks if it's true and believes whatever the abuser says, no questions asked?
1: There's so many cases where the child could have been saved had the social worker called the police. Because I believe in safety first. Then you go through the home and do a search of every single room. And for the love of God, please stop interviewing these children in front of their supposed abusers. Absolutely.
0: The last time Sylvia and Jenny's parents visited their daughters was on October 5th. It would only be one more month until the carnival season would be over and the family would all be back together again. It would only be one more month until the carnival season would be over and the family would all be back together. Again, the girls kept their secret, afraid of making it worse. Gertrude alienated them from anyone who cared about them and they had nowhere else to go. On October 6th, the day after her parents left, was Sylvia's last day of school. After that day, Gertrude locked her in the basement and refused to let her leave the house at all. Gertrude told the school that Sylvia had no interest in going anymore and there was no additional follow-up. Shortly after that, the family's reverend, Roy Julian, visited them as a part of a program he had set up to see each of his parishioners at their homes. While he and Gertrude drank coffee, she complained to him that Sylvia had been an intense burden on her, claiming that the girl was a prostitute who had been servicing married men and had gotten pregnant. She insisted that her daughter was a virgin, and that Sylvia was attempting to pass off her own misdeeds onto the pure and perfect Paula. Gertrude and the Reverend prayed for Sylvia's salvation before the Reverend left.
1: The last thing this girl needed was a prayer. I'm sorry, but this is why Christianity occasionally gets a bad rap. God is someone you pray to, but it's not someone that comes in to fix the issue like a handyman knocking at your door. This is so irritating.
0: Paula and Gertrude turned Sylvia into a money-making opportunity. Paula would brag and detail the abuse of Sylvia to other kids at school and around the neighborhood. They started charging kids a nickel to gawk at Sylvia while she was forced to dance naked for them. Or they could pay a little more to push her down the stairs into the basement. Nothing was off limits. Gertrude allowed the neighborhood kids to do anything they wanted to Sylvia. She was kept constantly naked and rarely fed. When she was allowed to eat, it was in some bizarre way, like insisting that she eat soup with her fingers. Other times, Gertrude and her 12-year-old son, John, would make Sylvia clean the basement, by forcing her to eat her feces and drink her urine from a bucket they provided her.
1: These are some evil children. I couldn't imagine being a child and finding this okay to do.
0: Right? Like I said, an entire neighborhood of psychopaths. Kids can be mean, but I don't know any kids that would ever participate in serious physical abuse like that.
1: I don't know one. And I bet Gertrude was just loving this, huh? Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. During this period, Gertrude took her 14-year-old neighbor Richard Hobbs as her personal assistant when dealing with Sylvia. Richard was an honor student from a middle-class family with no previous legal trouble. He experienced a sudden shift in personality when he became Gertrude's assistant, blindly following whatever order she gave him. Many people speculated that Richard was Gertrude's lover and that she had seduced the boy into becoming her henchman. On October 21st, Gertrude instructed John, Coy, and Stephanie to bring Sylvia up from the basement and tie her to one of the beds upstairs. She told Sylvia that if she could hold her bladder throughout the whole night, she would be permitted to sleep upstairs again. The next morning, when Gertrude checked on her and discovered that Sylvia had wet the bed, Sylvia was once again forced into the living room and forced to masturbate in front of Gertrude's children and the neighborhood boys. Once she was done, Gertrude looked thoughtfully at Sylvia and suddenly proclaimed, You have branded my daughter, so I will brand you, referring to the rumor Sylvia had started at the school. Sylvia was tied down and gagged while 11-year-old Marie heated a sewing needle with a series of matches. When the needle was glowing hot, Gertrude used it to carve the letters I and M into Sylvia's stomach, taking care to teach Richard how to do it. Then she instructed Richard to take over and continue carving letters to spell out the sentence, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. At one point, Richard stopped and asked Gertrude how to spell prostitute. Gertrude wrote it down on a piece of paper for him and the carving continued. When they were finished, the wound was not only the carving, but also third degree burns from the heated needle that would never heal.
1: (sighs) This just makes my skin crawl. She had already endured so much pain, and they're treating her like a living ragdoll. This entire case sounds like a Saw movie.
0: Permanently scarring her like that for fun is a whole nother level of torture. She's not satisfied with just temporary physical abuse. She wants to psychologically torture Sylvia for the rest of her life.
1: You would think that this would be enough torture for the day, but I doubt it.
0: Well, satisfied, Gertrude left the room. At this point, Richard and Paula decided to give Sylvia another brand. They heated a curved piece of metal so they could brand an S onto her chest. Richard burnt the bottom half of the S a little below Sylvia's left breast. He then insisted Jenny come over and complete the top half of the brand. When she refused to hurt her own sister, he made 10-year-old Shirley do it instead. Shirley got nervous and had the heated metal turn the wrong way, making the mark look like a 3 instead of an S. Gertrude returned and laughed at the added mutilation. She taunted Sylvia, saying, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? You can't get married like that. You can't undress in front of anyone. What are you going to do now? She ungagged Sylvia, who replied, I guess there's nothing I can do. During all of this, Gertrude's ex-husband, John Sr., stopped by with a gift for the children. He had brought them a German shepherd, stating that he wanted to make sure they had protection. When John Sr. knocked on the door, Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy took Sylvia back to the basement and spent some time using her body for judo practice, slamming her repeatedly into the walls and floor. Once he was tired, he left to head home for dinner. John Sr. never entered the house and never saw or heard anything suspicious. That night, Jenny snuck into the basement to visit her sister. Sylvia told her little sister, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going too soon. I can tell. Her voice was weak and trembling.
1: What the hell did she think was going to happen the moment Sylvia's parents came back to pick their daughters up? Was she planning on saying Sylvia ran away? It sounds like she planned to kill her the entire time.
0: Right? This was meant to be a short-term situation. I honestly don't think she thought it through at all. If I was to guess, I would say she was giving in to her worst, darkest impulses with no thought for the consequences of the future. At least at this point.
1: Gertrude and her clan are a pack of imbeciles.
0: After this short break, Sham will tell us how Sylvia's horrifying story came to an end.
1: On October 22nd, Gertrude must have been starting to panic because she forced Sylvia to write a bizarre letter to her parents as she told Sylvia exactly what to write. The letter read, To Mr. and Miss Likens, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something. So I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And then when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could just to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I've also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay, and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. After she finished writing the letter, Sylvia was once again tied to the stair railing with her feet dangling off the ground. Gertrude tried to feed her crackers, but Sylvia refused and told Gertrude to just give it to the dog because she didn't want it. In response, Gertrude had her 12-year-old son, John, force-feed Sylvia the contents of the one-year-old's diaper. After forcing the feces down her throat, John handed her a small glass of water and told her that that was all
0: the water she would get for the day. Uh, okay. That's so gross. Can I just say, that letter is so stupid. Gertrude is such an idiot. No one would believe that an assaulted teenage girl would write any of that. Like, what parent would believe any
1: of this? If anything, it would make me even more suspicious.
0: And clearly she didn't intend for Sylvia to still be alive, because she would have just contradicted what was written.
1: On October 25th, Sylvia overheard Gertrude and her kids discussing their plan to blindfold her and abandon her in the woods to die with the letter that she was forced to write. She knew she had to make an escape. She made a break for the front door, but due to her extensive injuries and her general weakness from malnutrition, she didn't make it off the property. Gertrude took her back to the basement and force-fed her toast. She was extremely dehydrated and completely unable to eat at that point. This angered Gertrude, and she started beating Sylvia on the head and face with a curtain rod. When Gertrude got tired, Koi took over the beating until Sylvia passed out. The next morning on October 26, Sylvia was unable to speak or coordinate her body movements. Gertrude brought her to the kitchen and tried to force-feed her a donut and a glass of milk. When Sylvia was unable to get the glass to her lips properly, Gertrude threw her to the ground out of frustration. Sylvia was becoming delirious, repeatedly moaning and mumbling. Gertrude ordered someone to take Sylvia back to the basement. That afternoon, several more of her tormentors arrived for their sick daily entertainment at her expense. John sprayed her with a garden hose while he and the neighborhood kids laughed. Ginny couldn't take it anymore and left to go do some gardening for a neighbor in hopes of earning a little bit of money. Sylvia tried again to escape the basement, but collapsed at the bottom of the stairs. In response, Gertrude stomped on Sylvia's head before they all exited the basement. Shortly after 5.30 that evening, Richard returned and headed straight to the basement as usual. This time, he found Stephanie crying and holding Sylvia's limp body. Stephanie was tasked with cleaning Sylvia up, but panicked when she found her unresponsive. Stephanie and Richard carried her up to the bathroom and gave her a warm bath. While bathing her, she stopped breathing, but Gertrude shrieked over and over that she must be faking, beating Sylvia's lifeless body with the book, trying to wake her up. They laid her on the mattress in one of the bedrooms and attempted to perform mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but Sylvia had succumbed to her injuries.
0: These people are pure evil. How are they going to act surprised when she dies from the months of brutal torture?
1: You know that meme of Pikachu all shocked over something you should obviously not be shocked over? I'm mentally inserting that into (laughs) this case right now.
0: (laughs) And they still had no remorse. None of them cared at all about Sylvia. They only got upset when they knew they were about to get caught. Did they call the police or did they try and cover it up?
1: By this time, Gertrude was panicking. She was hysterical and crying frantically that they were going to get caught. They all spent hours getting their story straight and deciding what to do. At Gertrude's instruction, Richard called 911 from a nearby payphone, then went home to watch what remained of his favorite TV show the pop music entertainment program called The Lloyd Thaxton Show. When the police arrived at about 6.30 p.m., Gertrude handed them Sylvia's letter and told them Sylvia had run away recently and had just returned clutching that note. Gertrude pretended to be distraught over what had happened to her and told police she had been trying to doctor Sylvia before they arrived, but the story wasn't adding up. The officers found Sylvia's emaciated, lifeless body laying on the soiled mattress on the floor. Sylvia's lips had been practically chewed through, and all ten of her fingernails were bent backwards and broken. She had hundreds of various types of wounds all over her body, all different stages of healing, suggesting long-term and ongoing trauma. The police asked Jenny, as Sylvia's sister, what had happened to her, and she parroted exactly what Gertrude had told her to say. But at the end of her rehearsed statement, she whispered to the officers, If you get me out of here, I will tell you everything. With Jenny's help, Gertrude was arrested, along with eight of her child accomplices. Police didn't have any trouble getting details from the children. They each explained their participation in the torture in detail, and when asked why they did it, they explained calmly that Gertie told them to. Gertrude, of course, claimed she never beat Sylvia and blamed it entirely on her children and the neighborhood teenagers. She said she knew nothing about it at all.
0: I love that Jenny was like, get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. She was not (laughs) going to back these monsters up. Gertrude seriously threw her kids under the bus right from the start. Mother of the year.
1: (laughs) Right. Imagine the cops left, and Gertrude thought she got away with Sylvia's murder. Jenny would so obviously be next. She knew what was up, and she was probably enraged that her sister was murdered. I wish she would have told an adult sooner, but at the same time, this town of adults seemed to be incompetent.
0: She did, though. They told their sister, who called social services, and still no one helped them. This moment was Jenny's last chance to get help and if she hadn't taken it, she totally would have been next. We already know the neighbors didn't care enough to help.
1: Well, that didn't stop the officers, because they went around to the neighbors to see if anyone in the neighborhood had additional information on Gertrude, and learned from several of them that they had heard screams and someone yelling for help the night before, but decided not to report it. Their excuse for not calling the police, or at least trying to help, was that it wasn't any of their business or place to intrude on someone else's household. One neighbor said the scream stopped sometime around 3.30 that morning, so she figured it had been resolved. The autopsy of Sylvia's body revealed that she had suffered from more than 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely malnourished and dehydrated at the time of her death. The wounds themselves varied in location, nature, severity, and stage of healing. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut. Although an examination determined that her hymen was still intact, discrediting Gertrude's continued assertions that Sylvia was promiscuous and a prostitute. The official cause of Sylvia's death was listed by coroner Dr. Arthur Keeble as a subdural hematoma due to her receiving a severe blow to her right temple. Both the shock she had suffered due to the severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and deeper tissues, plus the severe malnutrition, were listed as contributing factors in her death. The coroner noted that the rigor mortis had fully set in at the time of the discovery of her body. Indicating Sylvia may have been deceased for up to eight hours before she was found by police.
0: Jesus. All of those people who heard her screams and saw signs of abuse and didn't do anything should be ashamed of themselves. They enabled a 16-year-old girl's torture and murder.
1: This is a murder caused by the entire community at the end of the day.
0: I completely agree. Did Gertrude really try to stick with her excuse that she had no idea what was going on?
1: Gertrude didn't hold out long, and by October 27th, she had confessed to having known the kids had been physically and emotionally abusing Sylvia, in particular her daughter Paula and Stephanie's boyfriend Coy, stating that Paula did most of the damage and that Coy did a lot of the beating. Gertrude further admitted to having forced Sylvia to sleep in the basement occasionally when she would wet the bed. She became evasive when one officer stated the likely reason Sylvia had been wetting the bed was her mental distress and severe injury to her kidneys. She still refused to admit her role in the abuse or take responsibility. Showing no remorse at all, Paula signed a statement admitting to repeatedly beating Sylvia with her mother's belt and wooden paddle, also to once breaking her own wrist from punching Sylvia's jaw too hard. She openly admitted to inflicting other acts of brutality, including pushing her down the stairs into the basement at least two or three times, and inflicting her with a black eye. John Jr. admitted to having spanked Sylvia on one occasion, adding unprompt that most of the time he used his fist. He also admitted to burning Sylvia with matches on several occasions, adding that his mother would repeatedly burn her with cigarettes.
0: Gertrude is doing her best to make her kids look like the real monsters and herself an innocent bystander. The kids are seriously deranged, too, though. They don't seem to realize that what they had been doing was horrible. They seem proud of it, even.
1: Are we surprised? The adults they trusted told them that this was normal and okay to do to another human being.
0: That's true. Please tell me they had the book thrown at them.
1: Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, John, Coy, and Richard were all charged with first-degree murder. Five other neighborhood children who had participated in Sylvia's abuse, Michael Monroe, Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, had all been arrested by October 29th. All of them were charged with causing injury to a person and then released into the custody of their parents under a subpoena to appear as a witness in the upcoming trial. Stephanie made a deal to testify against her mother and her siblings and her boyfriend at the trial in return for all the charges to be dropped against her. At a formal pretrial hearing held on March 16th of 1966, several psychiatrists testified before Judge Saul Isaac Rabb as their conclusions regarding psychiatric evaluations they had conducted on the accused defendants. These experts testified that they were mentally competent to stand trial. The prosecution announced their intention to seek the death penalty for all five defendants. They successfully argued before Judge Rabb that all the defendants should be tried together as they were ultimately charged with acting in concert in their collective crimes against Sylvia. They argued that if each were tried separately, neither judge nor jury could hear testimony relating to the total picture of the crimes committed. The trial was scheduled a month out, so Paula could give birth to her baby girl, who she named Gertrude, after her mother.
0: I can't believe Paula named her baby after her evil mother. Even after Gertrude threw Paula under the bus, she still idolized her.
1: She sent her child up to be an angry person.
0: (laughs) Not a good name. (laughs) Sorry to anyone that might be named Gertrude. (laughs) Okay, but I don't agree with them letting Stephanie off completely. She should have just been charged with a lesser sentence or something. What happened at the trial for the rest of them?
1: The trial of Gertrude Banasowski, her children Paula and John, as well as their neighbors Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, began on April 18th of 1966. All were tried together for first-degree murder and torture of a minor with premeditated malice. All four teenagers pleaded not guilty. At trial, the attorneys for Richard, Coy, Paula, and John claimed that they had been pressured into participating in Sylvia's torment, abuse, and torture by Gertrude, and were essentially also victims themselves. Gertrude simply pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. For two days, Jenny testified against all five defendants, stating that each one had repeatedly and extensively both physically and emotionally abused her sister by their own free will. Adding that Sylvia had done nothing to provoke the assaults, and that there had been no truth in the slurs each had spread about Sylvia's character. During her testimony, Ginny stated the abuse her sister and herself had endured began approximately two weeks after they began to live in Gertrude's household, and that the abuse her sister was forced to endure escalated quickly. Ginny burst into tears as she recalled how just before she had died, Sylvia had predicted her own death and tried to prepare Ginny for it. On May 10th, Baptist minister Roy Julian testified to having known a teenage girl was being abused in the home, but he did not report it to authorities because Gertrude had told him that Sylvia had made advances to men for money. He had believed the girl was being punished for prostitution. Next, 13-year-old Judy Duke testified to having witnessed Sylvia once endure assault being rubbed into her sores all over her body until she screamed. Judy also testified to one occasion where she witnessed 10-year-old Shirley rip open Sylvia's blouse, to which Richard had made a casual remark, everybody's having fun with Sylvia these
0: days. Oh, the minister pisses me off the most. He was okay with Gertrude torturing a child as long as he believed she was being punished for a sin. Even if Sylvia was sleeping around, which she wasn't, That doesn't give anyone the right to abuse her. He deserves to be charged as an accomplice.
1: He can go straight to hell in a handbasket.
0: (laughs) What else happened at the trial?
1: The following day, Gertrude testified in her own defense. She denied any responsibility for Sylvia's prolonged abuse, torment, and ultimate death. Claiming her children and other children within her neighborhood must have committed these acts in her home, which she had described as being a madhouse. She also added that she had been too preoccupied by her own ill health and depression to control her children. In response to questioning about if she had ever physically abused the sisters herself, Gertrude claimed that although she had started to spank them on one occasion, she was emotionally unable to go through with it. She denied any knowledge of Sylvia having ever endured any beating, scolding, branding, or burning within her home. Two days later, Richard Hobbs testified in his own defense— describing how Gertrude had begun etching the insult into Sylvia's abdomen before asking him to finish the task. Richard admitted that Sylvia had begged him to stop, but that he felt no remorse or sympathy for her at the time. Richard further testified that he had been surprised to find Sylvia at the house at all on October 26. As Gertrude had informed him, she intended to get rid of Sylvia the day prior. When now-12-year-old Marie was called to the stand as a witness for the defense. She originally backed up her mother's claims. Under cross-examination, though, she broke down and cried out, "'Oh, God, help me.'" At that point, she turned against her family. She admitted that she had heated the needle that Richard had used to brand Sylvia's abdomen. Marie also testified about her mother's indifference to Sylvia's obvious distress and suffering in relation to the physical and mental abuse she had suffered with Gertrude's full knowledge— Marie added that although all five defendants had repeatedly tormented Sylvia, she witnessed her mother and sister committing these acts more often than anyone else.
0: Ugh, I just really hate these people. Gertrude more than anyone else, but the kids too. How did so many psychopaths end up in one neighborhood? I mean, I know Gertrude was creating them with her own children, but the rest of the neighborhood kids...
1: All of these kids deserve to be locked up, and they should all be checked for mental illness because none of these actions should have come from any person of sound mind.
0: A hundred percent agree. I bet people went crazy over this case when it came out.
1: Oh, the trial was a circus when it came to spectators. The courtroom's 50 seats filled up quickly every day of the trial. Lines formed outside the courtroom, and when the doors opened at 8.30 a.m., the rush for the seats began. Judge Rabb sometimes allowed as many as 100 spectators to stand against the walls to watch. During the fifth week of the trial, two women even got into a fight over a seat. The loser walked away without a seat at the trial and a badly cut hand. At one point during the closing arguments, an attorney looked at the overflowing crowd in the courtroom and said, If some of these people had been this concerned about Sylvia earlier, she would probably still be alive today. The trial of the five defendants lasted 17 days before the jury left to consider its verdict. On May 19th of 1966, after deliberating for eight hours, the panel of eight men and four women found Gertrude guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder and also sentenced to life imprisonment. Richard, Quay and John were found guilty of manslaughter, and each was sentenced to anywhere from 2 to 21 years in the Indiana Reformatory. Upon hearing Judge Rapp pronounce the verdicts, Gertrude and her children burst into tears and reached out to console each other, while Richard and Coy remained impassive.
0: Okay, first off, I agree with that lawyer that if even a few of those people obsessed with being involved in the trial had gotten involved on Sylvia's behalf, she would still be alive. Secondly, those boys got off easy with manslaughter.
1: Oh, that lawyer had time that day. He told the crowd exactly what they needed to hear. And there's no way those boys didn't grow up to be sickos.
0: Well, at least Gertrude and Paula will spend the rest of their lives in prison.
1: Well, not exactly. In September of 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Gertrude and Paula on the basis that the judge had denied repeated requests by the defense counsel at their original trial for both a change of venue and separate trials. This ruling further stated that the circumstances regarding the atmosphere created during their trial due to the extensive media publicity surrounding the case impeded any chance of either defendant receiving a fair trial. The pair was retried in 1971, where Paula opted to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter rather than face a retrial. She was sentenced to serve a term between 2 and 20 years imprisonment for her part in Sylvia's abuse and death. Despite unsuccessfully attempting to escape from prison twice, Paula was released in December of 1972. All in all, Paula only served a total of 7 years in prison. She changed her name to Paula Pace and wasn't heard from again until 2012, when her real identity was discovered via Facebook. She had been living in Marshalltown, Iowa, working as a teacher's aide with special needs students. Paula, now a mother of two, was fired from her job for providing false information on her employee application. Since then, she has once again slipped off the grid. Gertrude, however, was once again convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison for the second time. Over the course of the next 14 years, Gertrude became known as a model prisoner at the Indiana Women's Prison. She worked in the prison's sewing shop and was known as somewhat of a dead mother to younger female inmates, becoming known to some within the prison by the nickname Mom. Gertrude was up for parole in 1985 after serving the minimum of 20 years in prison, Forty thousand Indiana citizens fought to oppose her release alongside Ginny and the rest of Sylvia's family. The parole board was split on the vote, but in the end, it barely came out in Gertrude's favor. She was released on December fourth of nineteen eighty-five. She then changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen and moved to Iowa. On June sixteenth of nineteen ninety, Gertrude died of lung cancer at the age of sixty-two. She never took responsibility for her crimes claiming she couldn't remember her actions.
0: Uh, Paula working with special needs children is a nightmare. She's a sadistic child abuser and should never be allowed near any children at all. Gertrude as a den mother in prison is sickening too. They both got off way too easy.
1: Part of me is like, did the prison mates know the exact crime Gertrude was in there for? And Paula shouldn't be around children, let alone be able to raise her own. She was the oldest of them all and knew exactly what she was doing. As Gertrude's daughter, she could have helped Sylvia rather than make things worse.
0: In my opinion, they both should have spent the rest of their lives behind bars. Please tell me the boys got more of a punishment fitting what they did to Sylvia.
1: Nope. John Jr. became the Indiana State Reformatory's youngest inmate, serving just two years before being released. He changed his name to John Blake and drifted aimlessly before experiencing a religious epiphany that he said helped him to see the error in his ways. Unlike the rest of his family, he made no attempt to hide his past, and even spoke about it publicly on occasion. He got married and had three kids and also became a minister who primarily worked with children of divorce. He died of cancer in 2005 at the age of 52. Coy Hubbard also served only two years before being released. His attorney, Forrest Bowman Jr., remembers running into him in the early 1970s when he stopped at a gas station where Coy was working. He never changed his name and reportedly remained in the Indianapolis area most of his adult life. He got married and raised five children while in and out of jail for various criminal offenses. He was tried for another murder in 1982 but acquitted. He also reportedly lost his job in 2007 when the movie An American Crime about Sylvia Likens came out. He died of a heart attack in June of 2007 at the age of 56. Richard Hobbs was released after only two years as well, but we don't know much about how he spent his four years of freedom. He died of lung cancer in 1972 at the age of 21. As for Stephanie, she served no time at all for her part in Sylvia's death due to the deal she made with the prosecution to testify against her family. Once it was all over, she changed her name, got married and had children and worked for many years as a teacher in Florida. Her younger sisters, Marie and Shirley, were never charged and reportedly never left Indiana. James, who was eight when Sylvia was being tortured, was also never charged, The youngest of Gertrude's children, Dennis Jr., was only a baby at the time and had no part in what happened in Sylvia. He was placed in foster care and eventually adopted by a family in California.
0: What is with these people finding ways to work with kids? None of them should ever be allowed around children again, ever. They all got off easy and went off to have families and lives of their own, every opportunity they took from Sylvia.
1: Oh, never. And I'm glad Dennis Jr. got out young. Him being raised by anyone outside of that house will serve him
0: better. Okay, enough about those monsters. What happened to Jenny?
1: Jenny grew up and married an Indianapolis man named Leonard Wade. The couple had two children, although she remained traumatized by the abuse she was forced to watch her sister endure. For the remainder of her life, Jenny was dependent upon anxiety medication for the PTSD that remained. When Ginny read Gertrude's obituary in the newspaper in 1990, she clipped the section from the newspaper, then mailed it to her mother with an accompanying note reading, Some Good News. Ginny died of a heart attack on June 23rd of 2004 at the age of 54. I love Ginny. She's a badass. Oh, I would have done the exact same thing. Betty Likens died in 1998, and Lester Likens died in 2013. In the years prior to her own death, Jenny had passionately emphasized that no blame should be placed upon either of her parents for placing her and Sylvia in the care of Gertrude, stating that all her parents had done was trust Gertrude's promise to actually care for them until they returned to Indiana. They were both devastated by the loss of their daughter and never truly recovered. Diana, Sylvia's oldest sister, made headlines in 2015 when she and her husband Paul got lost in the California backcountry and were stranded in their car for two weeks with nothing to sustain them but rainwater, a pie, and some oranges. Paul didn't survive the ordeal, dying of a heart attack after the first week. Diana, near death and unconscious, was discovered and rescued by off-roaders.
0: This family just couldn't catch a break.
1: Yeah, that's like one of those traumatic experiences no one could have saw coming.
0: Sylvia's not still trapped haunting that house or something, is she?
1: Valid question. The house at 3850 East New York Street, where Sylvia was tortured and murdered, stood vacant for many years after her death. Although discussions were had about the possibility of purchasing and rehabilitating the house and converting the property into a women's shelter, the necessary funds to complete this project were never raised. The house itself was demolished on April 23rd of 2009. The site is now a church parking lot. Sylvia death is credited with the formation of Indiana's mandated reporter law, as well as an increased understanding of the investigation and recognition of child abuse. The law states that should any member of the public suspect a child is suffering abuse or neglect, The citizen suspecting this abuse, regardless of the age or occupation, has a legal obligation to report the abuse to authorities.
0: Lester and Betty were fooled into trusting a monster to care for their children. Neighbors, teachers, pastors, and social workers didn't feel it was their place to get involved when they saw signs of abuse. No one came to Sylvia's rescue while she was tortured as a form of sick, twisted entertainment. When a child is being hurt it is everyone's responsibility to stop it the united states has one of the worst records among industrialized nations losing between four and seven children every day to abuse and neglect if someone had stood up for sylvia she could have had the opportunity to live a full and happy life and there are so many more children that need protecting
1: please consider donating to child help their goal is to meet the physical, emotional, educational, and spiritual needs of abused, neglected, and at-risk children. They focus on prevention, intervention, treatment, and community outreach. Child help programs and services help children from any situation and let them experience the life they deserve, one filled with love. The principal theme across all of their programs is to provide children with an environment of compassion and kindness. To get involved, go to childhelp.org. If you know someone who might be experiencing abuse, please call the Child Help National Abuse Hotline at 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's 1-800-422-4453.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. As a parent, it's so hard to let our little ones go out into the world, to babysitters, to school, to anywhere we can't watch over them. We do our best to make sure our children are safe and happy, but there's a limit to what parents can do. That's where protection symbols can help. As a way to not only mitigate some of your own worry, but also to help the child feel more confident and in control when they're away from home. A traditional heathen approach is to use bind runes. Similarly, in the Celtic ohm, the letter in Lewis is associated with the tree Rowan, which is associated with protection from evil. You can draw your preferred symbol on the tag of your child's clothes or inside a backpack or even on a stone they can carry around for added protection.
1: Once I get the courage to let someone outside of my siblings and parents watch me and my husband's children, we will definitely be doing this. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until
0: Until next time, stay vigilant, Vigilant Conjurers. conjurers.